0: why would I ever want to take my hard-earned money and pay Uncle Sam a big piece of it when I'm going to go out and buy more real estate? Hello and welcome to Pillars of
1: Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. We me, excited to have... Scott Saunders. Scott, how are you doing today?
0: Todd, great. Great to be with you today.
1: Absolutely. Scott is the uh, Senior VP with Asset Preservation API. uh, That's a subsidiary of Stewart Information Services Corporation. Uh, and Scott has an extensive background in 1031 exchanges. Uh, he's been overseeing and involved in over 100,000. Is that right? 100,000 exchanges?
0: I wouldn't lie. That's accurate. Oh my I've been goodness, doing it, man. Todd, since 1988. This has been my sole career is in the area as a qualified intermediary, helping people with 1031 exchanges. So I'm, I'm kind of a wow. niche specialist.
1: So what what is... What has changed in the industry, specifically uh, with with what you do with the 1031 uh, exchanges? What has changed uh, now, maybe for the worse or for the better?
0: Well, the the code itself has been around since 1921. So the basic Mm, premise of a 1031 has been through good economies and bad and every political environment. So the, the tool has been around a long time. If to answer your question, what's changed, you know, years ago, um, investors didn't embrace exchanges as much. They were concerned about them being legitimate. They maybe didn't know. Today, I just think with uh, information, podcasts, YouTube, social media, you see a lot of posts talking about what is a 1031. So I think it's become much more accepted in the marketplace. It really, you know, when I began in the late 80s, it was known well on the West Coast but not as much on the East Coast today. Interesting. I'd say the whole country knows what a 1031 is. They may not know all the different ways you can use it, but I think people are at least familiar. And the, the other piece has changed a little bit, which is probably on the negative side. You know, people in Congress or, you know, the different presidents kind of look at the code and they go, wow, this is a tax savings. Maybe we should eliminate it or limit it. Um, And so the last three years, President Biden's proposed that in his budget to cap 1031s. And so I think as they become more popular, they're a little more visible. And I think politicians are like, wait a minute, should we really be having this in the code? Is this really something that's important or not?
1: So maybe we should just stop this podcast right here, right now. Forget that we ever mentioned 1031 exchanges, because I don't want President Biden listening to this and than getting any ideas.
0: Well, I don't know about that, Todd. He already has proposed capping at it. I say, let's let him listen. Um, there, there are a lot of studies that talk about the economic benefits. It's something like there's a study from Ernst Young, and the number is right around $97 billion impact on GDP annually. So wow. 1031, it's a great tool for investors of all sorts. But the other thing it does is it increases transactional activity. Somebody wants to Relocate from the West Coast to, let's say, Texas, they do an exchange. And so you've got the closers make money, the lenders make money, appraisers. So there's a lot of job creation associated with 1031. And I think most people in politics, whether they're on one side of the aisle or the other, they want people with good jobs. You know, that's, we all know that's good for the economy. And, um, you know, job creation is a very important element for sure.
1: Well, in ten thirty one exchange, isn't it a it's not a tax, um, you know, escape. It's a tax deferral, right? So it's it's, yeah, yeah. Has it been under attack? You've been doing this for what you say thirty four years? Has
0: thirty four years, yeah.
1: Has it been under attack that? Off and on for that entire time, or is it more recently that it's been Most, under attack?
0: More recently. So I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years, it's come up. So um, you know, I spend a fair amount of time. I won't digress, Todd, but I'm I'm involved with our government affairs committee. And so when you just look at tax law, they have this concept of a pay for. So if you're gonna get a new benefit like a tax break, you gotta pay for it. By eliminating something that's out there it's kind of a zero-sum game and so sure. that whole concept i think has driven the discussion you know if we want to create child tax credits or other things we got to figure out a way to pay for it and a lot of times i find people in congress unless they've been involved in real estate they may not understand you know just how powerful the tool it is so you know, a 1031, if it, just to kind of summarize it, it just allows people to defer taxes when they exchange one property held for investment or held in a business for another. That's really all it is. It's a deferral mechanism, as you correctly noted.
1: I get a property, I purchased it, um, a single family house, maybe, maybe it's a duplex or maybe it's even a small apartment building, but I purchased this asset, bought it, we did a bunch of renovation and we quickly sold it. Can I 1031 exchange
0: that? That one does not qualify. So that's interesting. So a 1031 applies when you hold for investment, which it means with a building, it's got to have rental income or attempts to rent it. So if you do, a, you know, you buy an undervalued asset, you fix it up and then immediately sell it, that's being held for sale. Now, it gets a little nuanced. You've got to look at a number of different aspects to determine is it being held for sale or for investment, but property held for sale is excluded. So development property, you can't develop something and i put a tenant in, you make profit, but that's going to be taxed as ordinary income. And then let the you know, investors certainly know a fix and flip, right? If you're fixing yeah. and flipping, you're going to have to pay ordinary income. One workaround if, is you could do that and put a tenant in there, let's say, for a year or more. Now yeah. you've made it a rental property and then it would qualify.
1: What if I bought a um, what if I bought a apartment building? Let's say I bought an apartment building It was fully fully occupied. um we maybe we did some work to it and and then nine months later, or six months later, get you know, very short period of time later, somebody comes to us unsolicited. Somebody just comes to us and says, Hey, we want to buy this building. You and we, we bought it for eight million, they want to buy it for ten million dollars. Uh, can we 1031 something like that, even though it was only held for a short period of time?
0: Yeah, Todd, I would say absolutely. So, where people, and we get this question every single day, which is how long do I have to hold it? What's the time period, right? Is it you a hear year?
1: You 13 months or a year or
0: whatever, you, but- You hear a year, you hear a year and one day, you hear two yeah. years. Let me give you the skinny for you and your audience on this. There is no time period anywhere in the 1031 tax code, none. But what the IRS looks at is your intent to hold for investment. So they're gonna look at all the facts and circumstances. So your scenario- You intended to do it. You bought it. It was a good long-term hold. Somebody out of the blue knocks on your door and says, hey, we want to pay you a lot more for the asset. So your intent might be, yeah, I was going to hold a long-term, but now I got this unbelievable offer. So let's take yours, 8 million, you paid for it. Somebody's going to offer you 16 million, double, right? Well, you'd be kind of crazy to turn down double what you're into it for. Right. I would say that you absolutely could, as long as you can demonstrate that your intent was to hold long-term. So what do you do is you get with your CPA or your tax attorney, you make sure they're on board and you feel like you've got good facts and circumstances to bolster that argument that it was held for long-term investment.
1: Yeah, that, 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 I thought you would say that, and it uh, validates what we are kind of thinking. We had actually a commercial asset we purchased uh, last year, and we were looking at selling it because the valuation went up significantly. And we said, well, I wonder if we can sell this and either pay short or pay long-term capital gains or hopefully even be able to execute a 1031 exchange. And our thought was, well, we'll probably get away with it. We'll probably be okay because we had a full business plan. The business plan was modeled around a five to seven year hold. We presented it to investors. We had investors involved. We presented to investors as a five to seven year hold. And all of a sudden we're finding out this property is worth $6 million more than what we purchased and we could possibly sell it. Now we ended up not selling it, but our thought was, well, we, we should be able to, uh, do a 1031 exchange.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And in that one, remember, I said you have facts and circumstances. Here you had a prospectus or some PPM for the investors showing your holding period, your anticipated holding period was five to seven years. So, right there, that's a great fact to say, look, we intended to do this. The numbers work at that time horizon. It's just something unforeseen happened in the short term. The yep. change that and made it more favorable to consider unloading it. So that, that would be something very much in your favor in that scenario.
1: So again, it's, it's deferring taxes. It's deferring taxes. And most people say, well, taxes are going to go up. So that's, I think the biggest hesitation is like, well, what, taxes right now today, the, you know, I definitely don't want to pay them, but where will they be in 10, 20, 30 years eventually when I'm going to have to pay the piper, why would somebody consider doing a 1031 exchange versus like, like sell me on it. I'm going to sell my asset. I'm going to just pay the government so I don't have to worry about it down the road. But why would you say, wait a second, let's look at this 1031.
0: Yeah. The, The short answer would be if you sold that asset today, and paid your taxes, whatever they were. And and keep in mind, Todd, you've got four potential taxes. Depreciation recapture at 25, federal capital gain, 15 or 20, net investment income 3.8, plus the state tax, which can be as high as 13.3%. So you've got a lot of taxes to add together. And at the end of the day, people find that when they look at that tax bill, it's generally a lot bigger than they thought it would be. And they're like, ooh, I, I did all that effort. I worked out of that long and I'm going to have to give that much away. The other thing to keep in mind when you do an exchange, as long as you go into another like kind property, we could talk about that. You can defer over and over. So, you know, what a lot of people do is like maybe they start off with a piece of land, just a piece of dirt, and they roll that into a single family and then a duplex, a fourplex, an eightplex. And then they get into the types of assets that you're talking about, a commercial property. You can reposition your equity into different types, go residential to commercial to warehouse. And so a lot of people exchange throughout their lifetimes. And here's the beauty of a 1031. Under today's tax laws, you pass away, your heirs get it with a full step up in basis to today's fair market value. So, You never paid capital gain taxes throughout your lifetime, and now you pass on highly appreciated property. Your heirs don't pay capital gain taxes. So a lot of times it's a myth that, well, I'm going to have to pay taxes anyway. Not necessarily. A lot of people that we work with exchange over and over again. For example, I'll never sell mine. I'll just keep exchanging them. I, I might someday consolidate them into a larger property, but I don't see any reason to sell and pay all those taxes when i like real estate as an investment i'm not a stock guy i like real estate so i want to keep my money in real estate because i understand it um it's tangible i think it has a lot of benefits so that's kind of my counter to that you know it's a myth that you're going to have to pay the taxes anyway and you know in real estate people use the tax code right depreciation cost eggs with bonus depreciation you know there are a lot of tools out there that really can help you get a better return on investment a better roi yeah
1: yeah um that that's what i love that saying defer 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 die But that's how wealthy families continue to pass on this legacy wealth is that they do. They defer, they defer, they defer, they eventually die. They pass it on their heirs. That's a step up in basis. And their heirs can choose to sell the property and, and pay tax on the profit in five years if they want to. Or they can choose to sell it then and not pay Or they can do the same thing. They can sell that property and defer, 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 and die and pass it
0: on. Absolutely. You know, Todd, I'm doing that right now. My mom passed away this year and she had a home she bought 20 years ago in Gilroy, California. And it's worth six times what she paid for it, right? Because it's California. And so uh, my brothers and I are going to sell it, but we'll have no capital gain. That's only one asset. Think if you had a portfolio with a bunch of properties, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, it, you're really passing on legacy wealth to your heirs and the next generation. So I, I consider it, to me, it's the most powerful tool we have in the code for real estate investors. You, you can't do this with your Amazon stock or your Tesla, Right. If a financial planner said you could buy Apple at a low number and unload it at a high number and then not pay taxes and go buy more stock, they'd say you'd be crazy <laughs> not to do it, right?
1: <laughs> Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing, man? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, uh, I wish I could do that. So, if uh, what happens if I've got a property? Let's let's say the profit's going to be uh, a half a million dollars,
0: and okay.
1: And I'm like, hey, I got this other replacement property I want to buy, but all I need is 350000 $350, dollars. And I really want this, I really want to take a hundred and fifty thousand dollars anyways in cash, and I want to keep that money. Can I do that? Is there a way to to buy a property of lesser maybe neat uh value and and to still do a 1031?
0: Yeah, absolutely. People do that all the time, Todd. About one third of all investors do what are called a partially deferred exchange. So they go into another property, but there's money left over. That's called cash boot. And then they take that out. So it's kind of a misnomer. People sometimes think, well, I've got to buy something of the same value or more. And certainly if you want full tax deferral, that's an approach to have 100% deferral many investors say, look, I want to have a little cash out of the deal, or mm. I've got some other needs. And so I want to pull some of the cash out. Absolutely. So you only pay taxes on that tax, that cash boot that you receive, everything else gets deferred and rough, roughly 30 to 33% of our clients do that. So that's very, very common. Yes.
1: Nice. Um, you, you mentioned the light kind property. I just want to make sure our listeners understand what that but that truly is. So, can you can you just kind of go through what's a what's a like kind property so we know exactly what we can exchange here?
0: Sure. So, like kind is any property held for productive use in a trade or business or for investment. So, it's any investment property or a property used in your business. And to kind of expand upon it, bare land is like kind with a single family. Is like kind with an apartment. Is like kind with industrial. Is like kind with a warehouse. Um, I could kind of go off the rails with you a little, Todd. Like, what if Minnesota? I had bear
1: land that I'm using for like personal use, hunting ground, or it's my lake uh, bear land? You know, as I like we, we throw a camper up there or
0: whatever, is that
1: exchange? So it's going
0: to yeah, it's going to be a facts and circumstances. Let's say you bought bear land, and, you know, on a lake in Minnesota, and you had a little personal use, but you bought it for a hundred grand. Today, it's worth four hundred thousand. I would argue you we're probably holding it for long-term investment, and it went up every once in a while and camped on it or used it. So, as long as you can argue that the intent was to hold it for long-term investment, and certainly when you buy dirt, you're holding for appreciation. So as long as you got a little something to support that, I think that's absolutely valid. Gotcha. But you could go from the dirt right into an apartment building, and I think that's where sometimes people get tripped up. It doesn't have to be, dirt have to for be- dirt. exactly. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a house for another house. You can go, I could do a house in California for a million dollars and buy an eight unit building in Texas, right? So you're going from one unit to multiple. It, it, what it can't be, maybe, maybe an easier way to frame it, Todd, would be what doesn't qualify. Yeah, Your home you live in can't exchange into a home you live in. Okay. You can't exchange out a property held for sale, what we call dealer property. Other than that, as long as it's real estate, it's got to be real estate within the United States. Any state that's called like-kind property, you can't do domestic for foreign real estate. But uh-huh. real property uh-huh. in the U.S. qualifies. Gotcha,
1: gotcha. What if? What about the? You just mentioned the the, the home you lived in. What if if you live there for several years, maybe it's 20 years or or whatever, and you're going to make a big chunk of money, you know, so you don't qualify for the, you'd have to pay taxes because you sold it for for too much money. Could you like rent that out for a couple of years and then exchange it or like, is there there a way you could do
0: that? Yeah, you sure can. So you convert a home you live in to a rental property. Here's the beauty of that approach. You get both tax codes. So Section one twenty one says if you live in a two out of five years, you're married, you put half a million tax free in your pocket, then I do an exchange on the difference. So let's let me make up um, La Jolla, California. I bought it for three hundred thousand. I sell it for three million. Twenty years later, you take all of your equity that's tied up in your home. Let's say it's paid for. So I sell for three million. I now have two point five million left over. And I go out and I buy a bunch of smaller assets or I buy one commercial property. I essentially have converted my home equity into investment equity that'll kick off retirement cash flow. So that's how you can do it both ways. I can convert a home I lived in into a rental and I can also go into a rental, hold it for a while and later on make it my home a few years down the road. So you can kind of go both ways with that.
1: And I, if I understand right too, you could sell a, a rental property. Let's let's say I've got a rental property here in Minnesota and my wife and I when you know, we're getting to retirement age, we're like, "Hey, let's sell this rental property in Minnesota. Let's buy a place on the beach in Florida." I could potentially do that, rent it out for several years and then we could maybe even move into it. Is that would that qualify? That's, a,
0: that's correct. Yeah. Your intent at the beginning has to be to rent it out. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of years would probably be, you know, more than sufficient, in my opinion, to do that. Absolutely. And then I'll give you a third scenario, Todd, which is actually my scenario. This is a three story house. I got a basement, main level, and an upper level. My entire basement, I consider a business property. So I manage my real estate from down here. So I do podcasts here. I've got two desks out in my big room, one for me, one for my daughter who manages my books. So when I go to sell my house, one third of it is business. I'll exchange out of it for another like-kind property. The upper two levels, I'll do a 121 sale on and exclude gain on that. So Think of so. I'm just giving you a house, but that could be you know when people do house hacking, right? I buy a fourplex. I live in one unit. I rent out three to build up some equity. They're going to sell that fourplex to one buyer. Yeah, twenty five percent of it is their residence. The other three units they exchange out of. So Mm. there are a lot of ways to kind of jump back and forth between those two tax code sections.
1: That's really interesting. I've never heard of that one, so that's that's cool. Um, you talked about, hey, you know, you're going to end up taking your portfolio. You got a bunch of single families. Um, you're going to take your portfolio and and maybe eventually exchange that into a multi-family. It it seems difficult to do. Like, how how could you actually make that happen? You can't sell them because you got to. You have to find a replacement property, identify your replacement properties within, what, is it 45 days, correct?
0: 45, yeah. So you close 45 days to identify and then another 135 days for a total of 180. So you would so, have to sell
1: that as more of a portfolio.
0: There, there are two ways to do that. Number yeah. one would be sell a bunch of them as one package a portfolio. And that would be the easier. The other way is to kind of get there in steps, right? Sell Four properties and roll it into maybe a eightplex, right? Sure. And then acquire some eightplexes and then later on sell those eightplexes and roll it into a thirty-unit building. So sure. there's a way to get there. It's trickier when you're trying to sell several and then consolidate into one larger, because you really have one exchange, which means you get the first one under contract. Maybe you got to drop the price on properties two and three to get them under contract at the same time. So that's what you run into.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's what I had a good, a friend of mine um, who sold a bunch of properties and ended up taking a really pretty good sizable discount on them, but it was able to then successfully do a 1031 exchange because he sold them as a big portfolio, Um, sold them as a portfolio to a single, single buyer, then was able to, Exchange into a, a very large apartment building, but he probably took at least a million and a half dollar discount by uh, on doing that oh, way. So it was, it was
0: interesting. Uh, Yeah, but look at it this way. He took a discount, but he still didn't pay his taxes. And I'm going to guess at the end of the day, he got to a better investment for him, putting one apartment rather than a bunch of scattered single families. So yeah, you take a discount, but you're not paying your capital gain taxes. So it probably gives you a margin there to still pull it off and have it pencil out.
1: Yeah, obviously, you got to look and do the math on something like that and to see what kind of discount you're taking and if it would be better just to pay the government. But, um, you know, who wants to do that anyways?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think, you know, I'm I'm of an opinion. Obviously, I'm biased, Todd. If you like real estate as an investment, you should never, almost never sell and pay the taxes if you're going to go out and buy more real estate. The only time it makes sense is, I'm done with real estate. I want to put it into stocks, bonds, alternatives. Then it might make sense to sell, but I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a real estate guy. Are you, are you, are you heavy in real estate, Todd? Like that's almost all I have. Same here. That's real estate's unique. You know, when you're into the stock market, you're diversified, you do a little of this, a little of that. Us real estate people, man, we love real estate. Like I'm, I'm all in, in real estate. So, why would I ever want to take my hard-earned money and pay Uncle Sam a big piece of it when I'm going to go out and buy more real estate? So that's Damn. my take.
1: No, you get a great point there. Got a great point. Um, there's there's a lot of people, you know, have these vacation rentals and is that, is that 10, can you 1031 all those too?
0: I'm going to give you two answers. If it's a pure second home, you can't do it. So if I just have a second home, personal use, can't do it. If it's a vacation home with rental income, I can. And the IRS came out in 2008 with um, some guidance. And really the easy way to remember it is it's called the rule of twos. You have to hold it for two years. Easy to do. You have to rent it for two weeks in each year. That's pretty easy to do with short term. The third requirement is what people trip up on. Your personal use can't exceed two weeks or 10% of the time it's rented. So for that mm. two-year window, you got to keep your personal use under two weeks. After the two years is up, you can do whatever you want. Oh, so there's some flexibility, but that that's how you kind of handle a vacation second home scenario.
1: Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, do you guys do a decent amount of uh, reverse 1031s and, and you know, maybe explain what those are?
0: We do. In fact, we have a whole special group that they specialize in it. So a reverse is simply buying the replacement property before you sell the existing property. We got guidance way back in 2000, so 23 years ago on that. And we do a lot of them. They're a great tool, uh, particularly in a market where you maybe find an off-market purchase that's really, really good. They're a great tool to tie up that new property close on it and take the mystery out of your exchange right you know what you're selling you know exactly what you're buying so they're very very popular um I've done them I've done one myself personally so they're great
1: yeah I mean one of the difficulties with the 1031 exchange right is that you've got a short time window to identify properties and then you have to close on those properties now the closing I would say is the least difficult right because you've got it's 180 days. So that right. that's a sizable amount of time, but the forty-five days can be challenging, especially if you didn't lay the groundwork prior to selling that asset. You know what? If, if, if you're going to ten thirty-one exchange, I, I would think you already know you're going to sell. You, the the property gets listed. You know when it gets under contract. You better be working your butt off now to find that new property. All right. Um, to have success, but the the reverse allows you to, Hey, I got this property that I'm going to sell. I just listed it, but I found a great deal. I found an amazing deal. And uh, I'd like to buy that property and not lose out on it. And no, my property is maybe not going to sell in time. Right. So that would right. be a perfect scenario. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit to, you can either talk about your portfolio or, or something you've seen in there done in the industry, but I want to know a mistake uh, that you've made and how can our listeners learn from it?
0: Um, you know, I would say a, a personal mistake that I've done is not being thorough enough. in My due diligence. I, I had one asset that um, I didn't really read the sewer scope it became a really expensive mistake where I had to, it, it flooded and backed up pretty foul, lost my tenants and ended up having to rip it out for a you know chunk of change, like twenty, twenty to thirty grand. So I would say, you know, a lot of assets you put an offer on, you got to really be thorough in your due diligence. And this one I did the sewer scope on, they identified mm-hmm. the problem and I was just moving too fast didn't look at the video and you know, it was all in the report and I just was flying quick and it was a bonehead move. It was just stupid. Hmm. So anyway, I, I like to say it was like somebody's fault, like, Oh, there's a good reason. I just was moving too dang fast and wasn't being thorough. So yeah, live and learn. I'll never do that again.
1: <laughs> it's I think it's easy to go too fast in the due diligence timeframe. Um <laughs> And not pay attention, right? You're, there's a lot of things you got to look at. Sometimes you're just too excited to buy the asset, and you kind of turn a blind eye. Other times, it's just you got so many things you're trying to look at and do, and it's just easy to to miss it. Or think something's not a big deal, too. I mean, I've 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 seen things on due diligence, and I go, "Oh, it's not a big deal," and it turns out to be a big deal because I should have really thought about that. That it was a big deal in the first place. Um, so it's so easy to, to miss stuff in DD. I think just really, they call it due diligence for a reason.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they do. Don't they? (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Um, Scott, like what's, what's a favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners?
0: Oh, favorite book. Um,
1: do not have to be a favorite just a good one you've yeah, been you know what
0: i like the book the wealthy code have you ever heard of that i um, haven't antoine he's got the wealthy code and the debt millionaire really good Um, I mean, he's not like one of those books that everybody reads but he's got a lot of wisdom in there um I, i've read it like eight times um now that the, this whole name is escaping me but anyway great book awesome
1: um how do you like to give back
0: you know, I I love working with other investors to be honest. So I'm in the niche of single family. Um, I'm in a few different groups, and I enjoy helping people out. People bounce ideas off me. Um, it's fun to do that. I, I would tell you my passion right now is I want to help. Like the twenty somethings, they're frustrated coming out of college. They're, you know, they look at the market and they go, "Crap, how am I ever going to buy a house?" You know, Denver home six hundred grand. How am I going to afford a home? Yeah. So and I have two kids actually I have two 20 some kids and an 18 year old just graduating this, you know, a couple of weeks. I think there's a whole generation that'll look at this and they're like, how do we do this? And so I want to show them like, look, maybe the way to get your first home is not the way you're thinking. The, the way to do it now, you know, we would start at our age. I'm in my fifties. We'd buy a condo trade up, trade up, right. We can kind of do that game. You can't do that now. What about going out and buying five or six single families in the Midwest for a 100, 150 grand? Get that cash flow, and then go out, and that'll give you enough to afford the mortgage on your home. So, yeah. I think there's an opportunity to take some of these kids that are a little bummed out, you know, frankly, probably you know, um, a little disenfranchised, to say, look, there's a way to do it. It's different than the way I did it and you did it, but there's a path to get into home ownership, and it starts with buying some little rentals out of state in a lot of cases and then taking that cash flow and then applying that and, and then building that up a little bit over a few years and then you get in. So that, that's something I, you know, just a passion project of mine. And, and I see it in my own kids' eyes. Cause man, they sure tell me how much, you know, how frustrated it is to be renting, 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 and looking at the prices, which kind of suck, you know, the West coast, Denver, a lot of these markets, Austin, man, it, how do you look at getting into a home for that price tag at an entry level? It's, right. it's kind of out of reach.
1: Especially at today's interest rates. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's nothing smarter than that for somebody who's young and wanting to get their first house to live in. Instead of buying the first house to live in, do exactly what you just said. Go buy some rental properties, get the cash flow up to a level to where now you can afford the mortgage. That pays those rental properties pay for your mortgage. We did the same things with our with our um with our vehicles. My wife and I and he, she wanted a new vehicle and I would say, "Okay, well we got to go buy another how much is that payment going to be?" Okay, 350 bucks a month. Let's go buy another rental property that makes us 350 bucks a month in cash flow and now we can afford a new car
0: right and no, that's and it that's, works that's it's genius right and it's not that hard it's just a Mm-mm. shift in the mindset of thinking yep. i'm going to get the asset and then let the asset pay for that thing that i need or want yep. yep
1: love it love it scott last question uh before we wrap up what are your three pillars of wealth creation
0: um i'm i'm going to cheat a little bit on this if you don't mind but I'll, your skill set your mindset and your network, right? Your skill set. What do you know? Your mindset. How do you focus? What are you focused on? And your network. Who are you following with? Who are your mentors? Yeah. Now, I told you I'm gonna cheat, so I'll cheat a little. I think today the secret to wealth creation is inflation. I, I think letting hmm. that drive up our assets, letting it drive up rent, and then letting inflation debase our debt. Right. Get good business debt. And, you know, right now inflation is what, five something. It's really running about 10. We all know that by what we buy. And we look at things like shadow stats. So it's double the official, you know, you get a a mortgage with a hundred thousand, 10%, it's only 90 really do that over 10 years. So inflation will debase our debt. It will increase our rents. It'll increase our asset value. So Yep. That would be the tool to use that to your advantage, rather than getting hammered by it. Use that as a tool to build wealth, and then use your skill set, mindset, and your network is kind of if, to address your pillars. There, I think those three together, um, combined with the tool of inflation. So I cheated. I'm going to call it four pillars.
1: That's all right. You, you we just you got four pillars and a roof. There you go. There are three three pillars in a roof, uh, Scott. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the uh, conversation. I love talking this 1031 exchange. I think a lot of people don't know enough about it and they don't know where to go for resources. So how can our listeners reach out to you, learn more about kind of what you do? Uh, You know, you got to have a 1031 intermediary. uh, So how can they reach out to you, learn more about your services and just get more information on this thing?
0: Yeah. It, we love talking to people. I love talking to people, answering questions. So even if there's, Hey, how could I do this in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, best way is phone number 800-282-1031. Easy one to remember. Um, company's website is apiexchange.com. So that's asset preservation, exchange.com. And then last my email, if you want to email me just my name, Scott at apiexchange.com. And, I I get tons of emails and answer every single one of them and love helping people out with 1031s. And by the way, I can't give tax or legal advice, but I've done this for 34 years. So I could give a whole heck of a lot of input.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I asked you several scenarios. We walked through several scenarios and you were able to at least guide me to say, I think that could be done. Of course, talk to your CPA and your legal team, but that was a wealth of knowledge and there's a lot of scenarios that people might have in their mind. They got a property, they're looking at exchanging, they're wondering what they can do, reach out to Scott and, and, uh, you know, look, free advice. That's, that's great advice. And you never know if, uh, if that, you know, advice that you get ends up saving a lot of money in taxes. Yeah. Wow. It's worth it. So definitely. Awesome, Scott. Well, really appreciate it again. And uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day.
0: Todd, thanks so much. Great visiting with you. Great questions. Good time.